In this dialogue, I speak with Bruce Sanguin, a fellow evolutionary pioneer and also a Christian mystic. We speak about the realm of evolutionary spirituality and the phenomena of intersubjective awakening. And along the way, we discover that both of us have become fascinated by the wisdom of indigenous cultures. I think you'll enjoy the synergy of our interchange very much. I think the synergy between you know, the ideas that are in the book and the things that I talk about and the ways that I think and the ways that you think and what you're thinking about, I think this, the synergy between that will be helpful to people. It'll, it'll probably illuminate some of the ideas in the book and bring things out with more richness uh, just because we're having a dialogue about it. Uh, and so, so that was why I invited you to be part of this series, and I'm very happy that you uh, accepted the invitation. Well, thanks, Jeff. It's an honor. And, great. And I guess I just thought to start by asking you if there was anything particular about uh, the book that you, you know, that, that maybe you found particularly uh, interesting and enticing that might serve as just the launch pad for this conversation. I love the idea of a couple of different ideas, but I'll start with, First of all, I want to say that um, I love the book, and I find that the the way you've the progression of the book, how you lay down sort of foundations for the next chapter and build upon it, is pretty effective in terms of a reader touching into the space, and in terms of uh, you know kind of a, an extended pointing out session in the form of a book. So, yeah, well, well done, first of all. Thank you. I like the way you've put it together. And, of course, I've long been interested. Some of my own mystical experiences have taken me into some of the places that you describe. And this kind of um, question of identity, which is your book's kind of an extended re reflection on and uh, my own experience is that, that uh, or discovery or eye-opening that, that I am, we are, um, sort of the localized expression or manifestation of a um, more fundamental conscious and, and pervasive consciousness um, having a human experience and actually experiencing, perceiving in a way on behalf of whatever that mystery is that's living us is a very real thing for me. And when you describe, I can't remember whose phrase it is, but talking about it as platforms of perception. I, I, oh, right. That was... Uh... Jeffrey Eisen, uh, a, right. a spiritual teacher that I uh, and friend of mine, his that's his his uh, concept that the self is a platform for perception. Right. No, I so I, I really I found that to be a helpful helpful metaphor, and just the whole. Um, the way in which you tease out the distinction between the me 
the objectified sense of myself and the I and um, and then move into in the final chapter the sense that it's <clears throat> it's in the intersubjective space that a new experience of the I can emerge. Um, I just mm-hmm. think that's really powerful, and given that it's based in your own experience, I find it find it compelling. Well, that's great, and it gives me a couple of places that might that I'd like to start with, and, and the first is is exactly what you started with, um, because I think by and large, the the picture of consciousness and of the universe and of evolution that we in the West have adopted is one where, uh, you know, the universe is essentially seen as devoid of consciousness. And, and so the process, so through the process of evolution, first there's, first there's nothing and then there's a big bang and that generates all of the particles and energy and then the particles and energy do a dance over trillions of years and form planets and suns and then on at least one of those planets uh, living matter forms and eventually at least one species develops a capacity for consciousness and and it's so so this there's an idea that at some moment consciousness appears in the universe and and it wasn't there before Um, and so if that is the case then then that means that consciousness is limited to a species maybe a few species Uh, it also tends to make us believe that our consciousness is somehow uh, embedded in us. It, it's located inside of us. And and what you said earlier, and, and what is the premise of the book, is that actually the universe itself is conscious from the start. Mm-hmm. And that, the, that what we experience as our particularly human variation of consciousness is is an aspect of the universal consciousness that is there in, uh, you know, that's there from the start, that exists in everything, always. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. And, you know, this to, to kind of drop into that awareness is a profound shift in identity from a kind of very small and contracted self and... You know, often when people look out at the universe and all the stars, the trillions of stars, etc., I often get in my workshops, so we're so insignificant. But, you know, I try to say, well, you know, you know, it's, it's this, you know, Ken Wilber talks about the confusion between span and significance. Just because mm. we're physically small doesn't mean that we're not significant, and our significant might just lie in the idea and the actual reality that we are the we're like concentrated amalgams of of that intelligence that's there from the get-go and that we're the 
we're the localized manifestation of of all of that having a human experience and therefore are uh, as i was saying before a platform of perception the universe is experiencing itself and we can go on and you know uh in this conversation to talk about you know the qualitative experience of what that consciousness is that is mm. living us and that we can awaken to and have experiences on behalf of if you like but just this shift into a much expanded a, a universal self or a cosmic self if you like uh is a profound shift in identity from what you called you know the thinking the thinking thing uh consciousness and right and which is which is sort of the uh the it's the sense of self that we're so wedded to at the moment that we are you know a thing that exists in a universe of other things right and you know we have the special quality of being able to think <clears throat> and so thinking the ability to think becomes a characteristic of our of the thing that we are Right. Uh, so you know, so we, you know, if you think about the the way that we chop up the world, we have all of these seemingly separate things, and they all have different characteristics. And we are a thing, and we have a very special characteristic, which is that we think. Uh, but as you said, it keeps us feeling, it keeps us embedded in a very small sense of who we are. Yeah, uh, in, a, in an isolated. Absolutely. ...sense of who we are in a world of other things that then we have to work at connecting with. That's right. As opposed to being in a milieu of interconnectedness that is just the nature of reality itself. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think this is, uh, you know, it's, it becomes logically the the assumption of separation that undergirders so much of our experience of reality and our experience of ourselves becomes indefensible uh, pretty quickly if you start to look at it. So one of the thought exercises that I employ, uh, you know, to help people's thinking is to say, you know, one of our most basic assumptions about ourselves, an assumption so deeply assumed and so unconscious that we generally don't question it, is that we appeared in the universe at some specific time, that there was a time when we didn't exist, and then there was a time when we did exist. And and so, you know, I ask people to identify when is the moment that they appeared in the universe. You know, where is the where what is the, the the moment where you could say before that moment you were not here, but after that moment you were here. And you know, of course, the moment of conception is is a great candidate, but if you really start looking at the moment of conception, it gets pretty hard to say that you were definitively here once a sperm and an egg came together. Right. Uh, and so then you kind of look, maybe you jump to the actual moment of birth, you know, but clearly it feels like that doesn't necessarily delineate 
you know, you were you were not here before the moment that you emerged from the womb, and then you were here. Uh, and and pretty quickly, you sort of realize there is no moment that feels definitive as an entry point, which means, uh, if you extrapolate out, that that you were always here. Right. You know that 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 you were never not here. Yeah, it's beautiful. And and it's it usually when you know when people think think this through. I mean, it doesn't. It's one of those things that doesn't make sense because we, you know, our our way of thinking has been so conditioned by an assumption of separation, an assumption of a limit limitation in terms of time, meaning that we had a definitive beginning and we'll have a definitive end. Yeah. Uh, and I love but, I loved your section. I love that section too, which felt like a pointing out thing, and it really does that. It really dissolves the separate me very effectively, and then you taste into the I that is now going to experience itself in and through us. And also building on that, how the case you made for how our language doesn't describe reality. Our, our language is, is a commitment to a particular reality. It's not just it's not necessarily descriptive of a pre existing reality, but rather our way of committing to a particular world coming into view and and or um, securing ourselves in a particular worldview, which is the one we're describing of of the world of me as separate from you, as separate from the stars, as separate from the trees, as you know. And so mm. it, we're we're really embedded, even in our language, in a profound commitment to that what you call a super story of the separate me. Right. There's a there's a story about. <clears throat> the human race being made up of isolated, independent individuals that all have a separate thinking capacity as one of their characteristics that, you know, roam the earth, live on the earth, and interact together, sometimes harmoniously and somehow, sometimes unharmoniously. Uh, but that is, the, that is the kind of super story that we live inside of without you know, without it ever really being called into question. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. One of the things, Jeff, building on that, that I was intrigued about was your your openness to and theogens and how this world that we're describing, consensus reality, if you like, of the realm of separation, you know, looks at those in, and theogens, whether they're plant medicines or LSD or MDMA, and says, well, sure, you feel all connected and all one and all loving. You know, you're on a drug. It's it's altering the mind versus actually realizing that all the medicine is doing is opening your mind up to what's already there, but outside of our capacity to land in and experience. Right. And this is the realm you know i've had some profound experiences on ayahuasca in the last you know six seven months 
which is a plant medicine from Amazon. Mm-hmm. And um, but in, in in terms of this awareness that that consciousness predates the emergence of the human being, um, I remember going outside during the ceremony and lying on my back and looking at the stars. And I was I was in this profound unitive consciousness, and and suddenly I really got that the stars weren't simply inert balls of gas, you know, devoid of meaning and purpose, but rather were directly participating energetically, actually, and in terms of their in terms of a form of intelligence, a form of w- without which we could not actually continue on Earth. So um, our continuation as a species was directly connected to and being participated by these trillions of stars. And it was very clear that these were centers of consciousness to me. Mm, that's beautiful. And, um, there, was, there could be no doubt after this experience that um, of the of of the intelligence and the uh, energetic participation of what the ancients would have called the heavens in in our life collectively, mm. it was right. a profound experience of of the oneness and the the pervasiveness of this consciousness. That is the source of the I. Right. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting, you know, since you brought that up. I actually had an experience just last week, uh, which really has stayed with me, and it's something I keep thinking about. Um, and, you know, I think I want to write about it eventually, but I, it's, I'm still letting it land. Uh, and it was a very simple moment. It wasn't any... I've had very dramatic experiences at times. This one wasn't particularly dramatic, but its implications were amazing. Uh, I was just outside, and I live on the East Coast. I live in the northeast of the United States, and it happens to be unseasonably warm right now. And uh, I was outside, so I was particularly appreciating a beautiful sunny day. And I happened to look up at the sun and sort of then back down at the earth and noticing how the sunlight was shining on the earth and and because the sunlight was shining on the earth i could you know everything was being illuminated in the beautiful colors of the sun and for some reason i had this flash of insight where i realized that the sun shining down on the earth and illuminating illuminating everything making it possible for me to see is a perfect metaphor for how I experience consciousness Hmm. as, you know, a kind of illuminating force that seems to emanate from me and, you know, makes the, makes the world shine so that I can experience it, both the outer world, but also the inner world. It it, it illuminates my thoughts and feelings and makes them visible to me. Hmm. And, and what I, and then I realized it was a perfect metaphor. And then I thought, it's actually not a metaphor. Right. It's the same thing. Right. 
the sun shining down and illuminating the earth and my capacity or the capacity for conscious awareness extending out and illuminating uh, the world are not, one is not a metaphor for the other, but somehow in some way that I literally don't understand, they are the same thing. That, that the reason I'm experiencing consciousness the way I am is because of the way the sun illuminates the earth. Yeah, it's beautiful. That's beautiful. I mean, it, you know, to my ears, it it feels kind of shamanic. Right. The sensibility that if what we're saying is true, then obviously this consciousness that is the milieu for all that arises is also animating the sun. And right. Something about sun consciousness, which is a reflection, you know, a, a perfect kind of reflection of the light of consciousness that also animates us, mm. and and brings into view the the world that we can see. Absolutely, and and like you said, it, it is very shamanic because it it leaves you with a sense of. I mean, connection is a word that I find difficult because connection already sounds like something that's joining things that are separate. And this is more a sense of unity, of oneness, of of the fact that, that and that's, that's what that experience left me with, was a sense that, oh, I'm not just a thing on this planet. I am this planet. I am this universe. Right. And, and my experience is somehow, you know, it's... My, everything that I experience as a seemingly separate individual human being is is all the same patterning that's being displayed everywhere in the universe. Mm-hmm. There's there's just one dance of creation that's happening at on all different levels, and I am that dance. That's beautiful. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's I I I get that. Mm. And I, you know, it made me wonder in reading your stuff too, Jeff, is uh, to to get curious about <clears throat> the distinctions between what you describe in your last chapter as the the potential of the intersubjective space mm. to give rise to the soul of a new self. Um, and whether or not, you know, kind of a, a shamanic or an indigenous way of experience the world, experiencing the world was precisely that, that they, that they only experienced themselves in the context of relationality between the other humans, you know, members of their tribe and family, but also between them and the river and the sun and the moon and the seasons and the wind, and they only knew themselves to even exist or have being in and through that those relationships. Mm. They couldn't, in a sense, imagine themselves being as an isolated 
entity because they were so embedded in relationality. Right. And I just wondered about, you know, this modernist period that we've come through in the last 300 years and that has sort of landed us with this sense of separate existence and the, the, mm-hmm. the illusion of separation and constructed a whole society and all our institutions based on that superstory. Right. Now, you know, the, the question for me is, 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 has that been all a distraction? Uh, uh, what what is in what way has that 300, 400 year journey been necessary Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. did it simply divert us from a uh, from an earlier consciousness and I know this gets into a whole conversation about stages of development, et cetera, and the usefulness of that. But, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious about that because in some right. ways when, especially when you're on, you know, these, doing these sacred medicines, you just, you're in this we space. You're in this intersubjective reality that it's not, as you say, that you feel like you over here are have now connected with all that is. It's that... You know, in a sense, there is no you over here to connect with that over there. You just see and experience the the pre-given unity of all that is. Mm. You know, it's interesting as you uh, bring this up, Bruce, because uh, it sounds like you've been maybe more recently becoming interested in some uh you know in the wisdom of of indigenous peoples and shamanism uh and and in in different ways I have as well so is that true first of all that's true yes so so the reason I'm finding this interesting is because you know you and I are both proponents of evolutionary spirituality and and have been for a long time and in evolutionary spiritual circles uh it's generally looked down upon to seek wisdom from more ancient cultures because as you said it's you know there's a there's a there's a whole conversation around the fact that evolution is progressive and therefore you know we can't we can't look back at the past uh because we we need to move forward and you know i realize that there there is a whole conversation and there's more there's more sophisticated and more simplistic ways in which people talk about that uh but i guess you know for myself and maybe you and i are are having a similar questioning uh It feels to me like there is a storyline in which uh, through the period of the Enlightenment and then through the whole development of modernism, uh, you know, the Enlightenment was really one of its one of its philosophical foundations was the power of objectification. So the ability to remove yourself from the scene adopt uh 
uh, an objective viewpoint that could be, you know, seen as the same by other people who adopted the objective viewpoint, you know, is the, was, the, was a big part of the basis of, of the rationality that was developed in the Enlightenment and, and became the foundation for science. But that objectification did, it, it, is, it is an effort of removing ourselves from embeddedness. Right. In nature. And there is a story that says, well, that process of disembedding ourselves from nature may be uh, a big part of many of the environmental and global challenges that we face. And it may be something we need to overcome, not by going back to be becoming, you know, to, to the way of life of indigenous tribes, which would no longer work for us. But but perhaps by rediscovering levels of connectedness to the world that we lost during the modern era. Yeah. And you know, Jeff, one of the I've been I've been reading a lot of Goethe mm-hmm. and his scientific method, which he challenged Newton. He challenged right. on his theory of color, etc. But he, he found a scientific method which was a way of directly participating in that which you were studying so that the wholeness of the thing could be found in each part. And so he refused to objectify. He refused to, he refused to shift into the empirical method that, that slices and dices and separates. And, you know, it's not that that's all bad by any means. You know, you and I uh, agree on that. But Goethe, and he's he's starting to be recovered, but he had a felt sense of the wholeness of the universe and this intuition that there was an elegant, undivided quality about the universe that the moment that you extracted yourself from that and started to study a thing as an object with what what some have called the arrogant eye of the empirical method, that thing wouldn't actually reveal itself to you. But if right. you were to suspend the arrogant eye and see the thing in itself on its own terms and with the assumption of that we're being lived by a wholeness that is also in the in that which you are contemplating, you can actually know the thing intimately you can actually you know and this is where he challenged well Kant hadn't come along yet but this is where Rudolf Steiner picked up on Goethe's work and challenged Kant's um, perception that that we can't know the world as it is we can only we can't know the thing in itself we can only know it as as we perceive it now this gets into some deeper philosophical territory I realize but um yeah yeah i just um wonder if there's another way of doing science right well you know one of the models for thinking about this that i really uh have picked up on uh comes from a professor named Jeffrey Kripal uh who's at Rice University and uh he's also one of the people i interview for this series, uh, and someone whose work 
influenced my thinking while writing the book. Um, but he talks about cultures, different cultures, as uh, essentially comprising of ranges of possibility. So, so for instance, if we if we think about the Enlightenment culture, the modernist culture, the rationality uh, that has been uh, dominant in the West over the last few hundred years, the primacy of of a, of a particular way of doing science, you know, as you're saying, you know, Goethe challenged that way of doing science. Goethe felt that there was a more intimate, participatory way of learning about nature rather than a more objectifying, abstracting uh, of data. You know, but it was the more Newtonian uh, abstraction and objectification which won the day and has dominated our thinking. But that that culture represents a range of possibilities. And there are things possible in the modern world that were not possible in in indigenous worlds. Yeah. But also there are things that were possible in indigenous worlds that are not that are not possible in the modern world. And and I guess I'm really questioning I think that our idea of evolution as as a as a progressive advancement uh is can be problematic. Um and I think this this framework of different cultures, different historical epochs being representing different ranges of possibility uh that doesn't necessarily imply uh a directionality might be a valuable one for for us to adopt because it means that you know normally if you are very deeply embedded in a modernist modernist point of view and then you study indigenous peoples and you hear about some of the the capacities that people seem to have you know where for instance they would go into the into the forest and plants would talk to them and tell them what ailments to use them for right and to a modernist you know to us that seems ludicrous it couldn't really happen. You know, we might be able to explain it in some other way, that it was some kind of intuition or, but, you know, that isn't the way those cultures defined it. And and my understanding of Kripal is he's saying, well, actually, in those cultures where they talk about how you know, plants talking to you and giving you information, uh, those capacities actually existed in those cultures. Absolutely. It isn't, you know, it wasn't, that's just the way they talked about it. And, you know, now now that we're in the modern era and we know how things really work, right. we can go back and say, well, that, they thought that's what was happening, but it was actually something else. He's saying, no, actually, there's just a different possibility range in those cultures. And just because, you know, in the modern world we've lost those capacities doesn't mean they didn't exist. Uh, and I find that, you know, the, thinking about cultures and historical epics and, you know, ultimately in the book I, I say uh, the foundation of any culture is the sense of self. And so every sense of self 
in, in, in our case, the thinking thing defines a range of possibility. There's certain things that are possible for people who are embedded in a thinking thing self and certain things that are not possible. Yeah, I really like that way of thinking about it, Jeff. It's 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 really helpful because, you know, you and I both know that in the realm of sort of integral philosophy and spiral dynamics, the the, the mantra is transcend and include. But rarely does the include thing or part of that actually happen in terms of bringing forth the actual, in this case, indigenous intelligence to inform or animate a a, a modernist or a postmodernist intelligence. It, they're they're not in in practice taken on their own terms. And uh, right. yeah, I think. I agree with you. Would be and 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 I and, and I think you can't go into these traditions, you know. Um, I, well, I guess it's the phrase you just said struck me. Is they have to be taken on their own terms. So, uh, I've recently met a teacher of Lomi Lomi Massage, which is a, an ancient Hawaiian mm-hmm. uh, m- massage and a and a and in its own world, a spiritual practice. And I, I was very taken by her and her work. Uh, in fact, I interviewed her as part of this series as well. Her name is Jody Mountain. Um, and I just, you know, she had a, a, a master of that tradition who she worked with until his death, and she's very in that world. Uh, and I'm going to go study with her uh, for a week in a few months. Uh, and and what I'm aware of is I want to surrender myself into the world of that practice as deeply as I as I possibly can, and as deeply maybe as is possible in the modern world. Uh, you know, because you know that that practice is now being practiced inside of a larger modern context. Yeah. But I want to see what's possible because I experienced uh, working with her. I experienced something that felt miraculous that I didn't understand, and it won't leave me alone. And I want to be able to surrender myself into a world so that I can experience what are the possibilities in that world and how. Is it going to affect the way I relate to myself, to the universe? Uh, and, and yeah, I, I just think I'm opening up to wisdom from sources that I had for a long time not given much thought to. And it just makes, you know, as you're describing this, it makes perfect sense to me in terms of your interest and, and given your experiences, too, in terms of, uh, practicing this, whatever you want to call it, we space or intersubjective space, mm-hmm. and the deeper, higher wisdom that descends when people come together with a certain intention to to feel into a new self. That that one of the ways in which you know sources of allurement for us who have that interest would be indigenous cultures. And and what wisdom that we you know that we 
we didn't include, but rather kind of left behind in the modern period. Mm. You know, there's 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 no question. My experience uh, in these ayahuasca journeys, you know, in terms of whether plants can speak to you, well, plants speak to you. I mean, right. It's, you know, you, there's a direct knowing that's coming from from the consciousness of this plant that's working its way and opening up your mind. And mm-hmm. yeah, Beautiful. it doesn't make doesn't make sense from this more contracted sense of self that, or from the the world of the possibilities of the modern uh, self. You know, it it's hard to imagine, but. Like you say, when you surrender to other possibilities, um, who right. knows? You know, it's, it's beautiful. Absolutely. Yeah. And and maybe let's uh, talk a minute about the you know about this intersubjective awakening. The you know because that is the culminating point uh, yeah. of the book. And and I my essential premise is that this the thinking thing self of isolated individuals that uh, has become the foundational sense of self for the modern world has reached, you know, it, it, its range of possibilities no longer extends far enough for us to meet the challenges that we face. And so a new self needs to be born. And and what I have experienced as the closest you know, what I've experienced that's convinced me that it is the best candidate I know of for the new self is came out of experiences of intersubjective awakening, collective being, uh, and specifically those happened in dialogue practices with groups of individuals, uh, sometimes very dramatically, where under the right conditions, uh, a group of sincere people who are focused and and highly engaged in conversation can experience the dissolution of the boundaries that separate us. So suddenly you start to realize that all of the, you know, just like the exercise of, you know, when did you appear in the world? You know, you can do an exercise of, well, what actually separates me from you? And and in these dialogue practices, those boundaries start to fall away, and and eventually, what you realize is that the the intelligence that's being expressed by all of the seemingly separate individuals is coming from the same source. Mm. You know that you know I'm speaking to you right now on the phone. And then you're speaking back to me, but what's speaking right. is not Jeff or Bruce. It's it, it would be you can experience it as uh, it, it would be more accurate to say that it's that that the voices and and what's happening is actually emerging out of the circumstance or out of the space. Uh, between us and and if you think about it it actually logically makes sense we've been speaking now for 40 minutes or so and I said a lot of things and you've said a lot of things 
if you and I hadn't been on this phone call together, let's say uh, I had continued doing what I was doing before and you had continued doing what you were doing before, none of this conversation would have emerged. This conversation wasn't a product of Jeff or a product of Bruce. It was a product of this interaction. It only happened because of this interaction. I'm only saying what I'm saying now because of what's gone on before in the conversation. And you don't even know what you're about to say, but it will emerge out of you in direct response you know, to the last, to the last thing that I say. So we're actually in a surrendered process in which we are allowing our voices and, and our minds to be orchestrated uh, by the engagement that we're currently involved in. Yeah, that's beautiful. You know, in the Judeo-Christian lineage, th this sounds very close to what is talked about as wisdom or Sophia. Mm -hmm. this, um, this, this transcendent intelligence that is known in community. Um, and you know, my understanding is that one of one of the ways that Jesus identified himself uh, that, that that the early community didn't lay on him was as a child of wisdom. And so mm -hmm. when he says things like, "Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst," I, I you know I sometimes wonder if that's you know if he, he's not in a sense describing how when you have a gathering of these kind of committed and engaged people like you have, and I've had some experience of this as well, that in fact wisdom is connecting, is, is given the opportunity to connect more deeply with itself or herself. And so therefore what emerges is that a whole new dimension of consciousness that transcends any of the individuals that are participating is given the opportunity to arise. And it's this wisdom that lifts everybody up into a new realm. Right. And I would completely agree that that's the case. And, and the way that it, the way that I imagine it is, you know, if I think of consciousness uh, as as a field, then the self, the sense of self that is the thinking thing, you know, obviously there's a range of of possibility. You know, you can have lower level thinking thing self possibilities and you have higher thinking thing self possibilities but the thinking thing can only go so high and then it can't get any higher it's like it doesn't have the buoyancy to go any higher in consciousness but somehow when we let go of those separations uh it 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 it, it, it is experienced as a, an awakened collective can travel higher in the spheres of consciousness and open up new possibilities, uh, and and that's what's so exciting, and and I guess what I'm aware of in the book, you know, when when I was doing initially doing collective intelligence work uh, 25 years ago, it, it wasn't very popular. Uh, the, the group that I was working with was very interested in it. Uh, but it wasn't properly known yet, and I think some of the extraordinary experiences that we had 
uh, helped popularize it. And, and so today, we space practices are, have certainly gained a lot of popularity, at least among certain circles. Um, but what I'm aware of is that we space practices that, that do often, I think, give people powerful experiences of collective awakening, if it stays in the domain of we space practices, uh, it's not it's not enough to transform society uh, because we can't limit it to experiences of a new self. We actually have to construct a new self. We need to construct a new platform for perception, you know, as you've mentioned mm -hmm. earlier, uh, so that we can rebuild the world and rebuild our culture from yeah. that new platform so that eventually you know, new babies that are born are going to be born into that sense of self rather than the thinking thing self. Just like you and I are born into a modernist sense of self. We didn't have to work for it, you know, but you know that the, that there were, there were individuals throughout the 1200s and the 1300s who were struggling really hard to attain the level of, uh, differentiation that you and I were just born into. Yeah. Uh, and, and so we need to establish that foundation, that new sense of self at this level of collective being yeah. so that it becomes the ground upon which we recreate the world and recreate a new culture. Yeah. Wow. That, that's a, a mighty vision. Uh, and, and it's a question that I've, Asked myself for a long time because, in a sense, what is the modern equivalent of the village or or the tribe? You know, where in, in some in some ways this intersubjective space was the only game in town. But 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 how do you, like you say, you can come together for a week or two weeks or three weeks and um, create this, but then. And I know that in in your your own community, Jeff, like you folks had this in in the context of an intentional community. Short of that, though, I mean, how how do you stabilize this we space? Because it's it's I, I find myself very isolated, actually. You know, I get right. through Skype with some people who want to practice this, but by and large, I'm not surrounded by a whole bunch of people who want to live this and integrate this. So it's a, right. it's a challenge. It's, it's a real challenge. And it's, you know, it's, I, f I feel that, uh, you know, I teach a lot and I write books um, and I introduce people to ideas and I run retreats and give people experiences. Uh, and I think all that's really important, but, but underneath it all, What's most important to me is discovering the the new form of community that will work. You know, I mean, as you said, I was part of an intentional community for many years. We had incredible breakthrough experiences, and and we also had many challenges. And eventually, that community couldn't be sustained. And uh, I'm thankful for what I got from it. Uh, but I'm also realizing that that's, that that some of the structures of that community make it not a viable solution for the right. world. Uh, so, 
So I'm really looking to what what is the community? How do we connect? Um, yeah. Certainly we have these virtual me- means of connection, and, and that's part of the solution. Uh, but I don't think it's the whole solution. It, it also has to do with how do we identify with each other? How do we, you know, a community isn't just a place to live, and it's not just a series of phone calls. It's an identity. You know, it is itself a collective identity. And I think discovering new forms of community where people are actually living in an ongoing engagement with each other and in, in a way in which everyone recognizes and identifies with uh, is, is crucial. It's, it's so needed right now. Uh, yeah. I, in some ways, I feel like it's needed more than anything else because, uh, you know, as you said, you can come together and do practices. Uh, but I think for a new sense of self to form, for, for, for this collective being uh, to be able to form itself into a new platform for perception, it requires us to be intimately and ongoingly involved with each other and each other's lives in some form that's actually going to work in the modern world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's been really great to have this conversation with you. It, it uh, As most conversations do, it had a life of its own and, and went in directions uh, I wouldn't have anticipated. But I really appreciate your uh, speaking with me today and, and sharing some of your thoughts about uh, the ideas in the book and, and going with me in directions that took us beyond what I covered in the book. Well, I, you know, as somebody who's read it now a couple of times, I want those people who are listening, I really, this is a really important book to read. And um, thank you, Jeff, for your work and for your leadership. Well, thank you so much, Bruce, and we'll talk again soon. Okay, great.